At my church, we have a common saying. The Bible was written to us and not for us. Today, we hear from a historian of antiquity about life in the era of early Christianity. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Welcome to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. When sitting in the audience for this talk, I knew I wanted to share it with our Upwards audience. Historical context is one of those things that many people take for granted when reading works written for audiences other than ourselves. And the Bible is no exception. To fully understand what God is revealing to us through his word, we need to understand the context of how the words and deeds were being applied. In this episode, we listen to noted historian Kyle Harper as he speaks to an upper house audience during our recent Geneva Forum on what life was like in the Roman Empire in the time of Christ. Kyle Harper is the G.T. and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty, a professor of classics and letters, and a senior advisor to the president, all at the University of Oklahoma. Harper has been a Guggenheim Fellow and an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, and he's also a Fractal Fellow at the Santa Fe Institute. He's the author of four books, including The Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of Empire, which was first published in 2017 and provided a portion of the context for this presentation. We hope you enjoy this Upwards from the Vault episode by Kyle Harper. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much to Upper House and to the Geneva Campus Church. I am really delighted to, to have the opportunity to come and uh, experience this amazing community. You are very fortunate. Uh, I am, to be honest, a little bit jealous. This is really amazing what's, what's happening here. Uh, very, very impressive. I've learned a lot. This is my first time in Wisconsin. Uh, I've been everywhere, man, but my first time in Wisconsin. Uh, I'm learning a lot during this trip. Last night at supper, I had fried cheese <laughs> dipped in cheese sauce. I can't even wait to get back and tell Oklahoma about that. We did not know that that was, that was something that y'all could do. So this has been, this has been a really uh, eye-opening trip in a lot of ways. But I really, really am moved by, by what's happening here and by what this, this place represents. So you're very, you're very fortunate. I feel very fortunate uh, to have the chance to be here. Uh, I don't know if you saw the, the news today, but um, uh, President Jimmy Carter's entered hospice. Uh, that was another piece of, of sad news. What an amazing human being, uh, somebody that really was gracious uh, in, in the deepest and richest sense. Uh, when I saw that, I, I was reminded uh, of my Jimmy Carter story. So I have a little Jimmy Carter story. Uh, and since that was in the news, I wanted to tell it because uh, he really is an amazing person. And I don't, I don't hobnob or know any presidents, but I spent one evening in my life with Jimmy Carter. Uh, I sat next to him in Plains, Georgia, when one of my best friends got married and I was the best man. And I got to give a speech with Jimmy Carter about three feet away from me. And my claim to fame is I made him laugh so hard he fell out of his chair uh, <laughs> while I was talking. Uh, he is the absolute real deal. My friend married into his family. And uh, I will tell you, the story was pretty good, though. I, you, you're not, I'm not the guy you want to give a, a best man speech uh, in the toast. I had saved, when we were in grad school together, 
my friend got arrested. Uh, he, he probably had had a, one too many strong drinks one night. And he's not a real threatening individual, but he said something or did something to a police officer of Cambridge, Massachusetts, who felt like he needed a free ride downtown. He'd probably earned it. My friend never been in trouble in his life. This is amazing for him. He was so worried. He typed out this note. I was his advocate, his psychologist, his lawyer, <laughs> and for his arraignment of what we were supposed to, what I was supposed to do, and all these contingencies. And it said, if the if the bail is less than five thousand dollars, call my dad at this number. <laughs> if it's more than five thousand, call Professor So and So and tell him I'm not going to be in class this week. <laughs> now, I love that story. Uh, I think I could try and make it spiritually relevant that, uh, you know, an earthly father is good for about 5,000. I know if my sons get arrested, uh, my love is probably a little bit lower than that. A night or two in jail might, might not be the worst thing. But, um, but Jimmy Carter was, was rolling out of his seat. But what an amazing, amazing servant uh, who, who really had a servant mentality as a leader uh, and right down to the end of his life. So I'm a, I'm a Roman historian, and um, I want to talk tonight about some of the ways in which the, the early Christian church emerges out of Roman history. I want to start in the city of Alexandria, the capital of Egypt, in the middle of the third century, around 250 AD. Alexandria is one of the most amazing and important cities of the ancient world. It's at the mouth of the Nile Delta, right where it meets the Mediterranean. It really became one of the three or four biggest cities in the Roman world, even though it had only been founded a few hundred years before by its namesake, Alexander the Great. It grew to be one of the, the economic as well as cultural hubs uh, of the ancient world. It was the financial capital of the Eastern Mediterranean. It was a major center of trade between Egypt and the, the East and the Roman Empire. It also became the most important intellectual city, the most important intellectual city, home to the greatest library of the ancient world, a center of philosophy, of science. It was hugely diverse, and it was home to a large community of Jews, including a very important Jew named Philo of Alexandria, who had an enormous influence on Christian history. And Alexandria became the, the site of one of the, the earliest thriving Christian communities. It's even sometimes suspected that maybe a few works in the New Testament had been written there, like Hebrews and possibly even the Gospel of John. Certainly by the second century, it becomes a major powerhouse for Christianity. The catechetical school there uh, is a, a seedbed of Christian thought. Clement of Alexandria, one of the most important second century theologians, and of course, the great origin of Alexandria. But by the middle of the third century, the city was plunged into turmoil. Egypt was a province that was really the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. The Nile Valley with its fertile alluvial plain annually flooded and recharging the resources of the valley was the most important wheat producing, food producing region of the Roman world. It was reliable until it wasn't. And in the 240s, the floods had stopped working and the harvest failed and people started to go hungry and the Roman Empire started to come apart at the seams. This was really a an unexpected turning point. If you could just go back a few years before that to 248, the Roman Empire celebrated its 1,000th birthday. The city of Rome was 1,000 years old. They celebrated their millennium in 248 BC, AD. Think about that. America, whatever we are, not a mathematician, almost 250 years old. We're about a quarter of the way to the length of time that the Roman Empire made it. The Roman Empire is one of the most remarkable political entities in human history. Its territory was simply vast, stretching from the Near East, from the Holy Land, from Syria, 
all the way to the Atlantic, to Morocco and, and Spain. From the far north, the far north of what's England, the Romans get to Scotland and decide just to stop and build a wall. There's probably some, some people Scottish background here, so I won't comment any further, but they, they decide just to, to stop there, all the way to the, to the sands of the Sahara. It's the only political empire that's ever unified the entire Mediterranean, though many, many have tried. With one system of law, one or two major languages, Latin and Greek, it's a tremendous force of integration. It's tremendously long-lasting. But by the 250s, this stability is direly threatened, threatened by civil war, by barbarian invasion, by runaway inflation. The Roman monetary system, based on the silver denarius, the foundation of the Roman economy, is in freefall. The banks are not accepting coinage. The, the value uh, of what we would consider a dollar uh, was going down and down and down. We have a papyrus from this period where the Roman governor has to tell the bankers they have to accept uh, payment in Roman species. That is never uh, a good sign. So the economy is falling apart. The new emperor, a man named Decius, seeing all of this chaos around him, does something that no Roman emperor has ever done. He commands every inhabitant of the empire, with the exception of those who are Jews, to sacrifice to the traditional Roman gods and goddesses. Now, there'd been persecution on local scales, regional scales before, but no Roman emperor had ever done anything like this, sending out a command that every single inhabitant of this massive territorial empire would be required to sacrifice, that is to perform like a, a ritual offering and pray to the gods and goddesses that protected the Roman empire, the pagan gods, the polytheistic gods worshiped by the Romans. Now, it was probably an effort to appease the gods, to try and stop the, the chaos. But it was also really, no doubt, in my view, aimed at Christians. Tiny minority, maybe a growing one, but the command to sacrifice was a very real threat to people who believed in the Christian God. And he was very serious about it. He ordered that every citizen had to go before a Roman magistrate to perform a sacrifice and receive a ticket or a libellus that certified the act. And we have dozens of these libelli from the, from the exact moment that survive. These real artifacts, these little cards. You had to be a card-carrying pagan in the Roman Empire in the 250s. And if you didn't, you were liable to extraordinary punishments. So this was a persecution uh, of a type that we can almost not imagine. They would, they would feed you to animals in public spectacles. Uh, they would kill you in gruesome, gruesome combats. They would torture you, uh, even perhaps crucify you. So it's an extraordinary form uh, of persecution. But it was ultimately to prove to be a total failure. A failure because it failed to uproot the Christian church. Instead, it did exactly the opposite. But it also failed to stop the troubles of the empire. And in fact, the troubles were only beginning to gather momentum. The very next year, the emperor Decius himself would be killed in battle on the Danubian frontier by an army of Roman enemies, the Goths, an ominous sign of their growing power. And to top it off, at just this moment, a deadly plague starts spreading without mercy across the Roman Empire. And I want to talk about that plague as part of this crisis tonight. But I start here in the middle of the 250s. It was a really multifaceted crisis. It's a time of war. It's a time of inflation and economic anxiety. It's a time of bitter cultural division, of efforts to use the levers of power to enforce belief. It's a time of climate change and climate crisis. It's a time of pandemic disease. 
it sounds a little familiar, but we don't live in the 250s or a new version of the 250s. My written remarks say history doesn't repeat itself and it doesn't even rhyme. So I'm very sorry to, to Jim about that. I'll show you this afterwards. I didn't mean to contradict you. I'll just say it doesn't usually rhyme, but if you say it does. This world that the Romans lived in was wildly different from ours. And I'll turn to some of the, the important differences and why they matter. But what I want to emphasize is that this exact moment, this moment of catastrophe, of crisis, of challenge, of persecution, ends up being a turning point, a turning point in the fate of the Roman Empire and a turning point in the future of the Christian church. It's a history that's important. I think a history that we can learn from. It's a history that's interesting. And it's a history that really ends up changing the world because what follows is one of the most decisive generations of cultural change in the Roman world. And I want to say tonight why I think it was so important. Why, in a sense, the church in this generation passed its test. I'm a professor and I like long and complicated answers. But I think there's a one-word answer to why the Christian church passed that test. And so I'll talk about that. Now, I'm a historian and the Christian story is a historical one. That is that Christianity is a religion that's rooted in space and time. With, with real coordinates, with real dates, with real latitude and longitude. The Greeks and Romans worshipped a polytheistic pantheon of gods, and they believed in a world of primordial chaos. That is, the gods were part of the existing order that had simply started with chaos and disorder, but the gods themselves didn't create the, the universe, the cosmos. The Christian story is different. It's a god who creates the cosmos, ex nihilo, creates space and time, and then actually chooses to enter into the stream of history at a very particular moment in a very particular place. Just think for one example about the words in Luke's gospel that describe when the, Baptist, when, when the ministry of John the Baptist starts. It was said to begin in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, or as they say in Texas, Abilene. Now, that's a pretty particular description of time and space. It's around the year 29 AD in a very specific part of the world. And the Christian story takes place in time and in space. Now, I was raised a, a Southern Baptist. I was very reliably in the back row every week. Uh, and I remember as a kid, always being fascinated by the maps at the back of, of my Bible. And especially if the preacher would, would go a little bit long, which meant every Sunday at 11 a.m., <laughs> the, the color maps at the back were to me an interesting kind of fascinating relief. The names and the places, the idea that these were real places and real names that had actually existed. But I admit that I knew absolutely nothing of the history around biblical stories, the history of Greece and Rome that surrounded ancient Israel and increasingly intersected the history of this region. The various Caesars in the New Testament meant nothing. I couldn't have told you who they were. And certainly as a good evangelical, I knew absolutely nothing of the patristic period, not even of its existence. Such a history might have seemed a little bit Catholic. And in practice, Christian history stopped at the book of Revelation. And then, I don't know what happened, 
but the Southern Baptist Church was born in Oklahoma, and that was pretty much all we needed to know. And I know I'm being a little bit unfair. That's not the experience of every uh, evangelical. And I think change, things have changed even in my lifetime. But I'm not exaggerating about my experience. And I think it helps to explain why. When I went to college at the University of Oklahoma by the grace of God and ended up in a course on the history of Rome that spent just a few classes on the history of early Christianity and treated them as though they were part of Roman history, it was really, truly shocking to me. I didn't even know that was possible. I thought there was church life over here, there was the Bible, and then there was intellectual life over here, where I would go to college and get a job. And when I sat in a classroom and saw that we, in fact, know a lot about the maps of the early Christian world, a lot of it from inside the Christian scriptures, but much of it from outside, from Greek and Roman texts, from Christian texts in something called the patristic period, the stuff that happens after the New Testament, the period of the church fathers, it was shocking to me. I even learned that the Bible wasn't written in English. Did you know that? This is, <laughs> this was, I was 20 years old when I found that out. I found out you could learn the languages in which it was written and it changed everything. I think sometimes you take a college course that really affects you and stays with you for the rest of your life. Sometimes you take a college course that so overwhelms you, you stop everything you're doing and you decide to do something else. That was what the experience was like for me. I didn't know there was such a thing as a Roman historian. I had no idea that that was a paying job that people could do. And when I learned that, it totally changed the, the course of my life. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to make a living doing it and that at least part of my career has been exploring the ways that Christian history and Roman history intersect, the way they're intertwined and connected. They're profoundly intertwined and connected. Jesus Christ was born in a corner of the Roman world. He was crucified, which is a form of Roman capital punishment. He was sentenced to death by a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. The Christian church spreads within years to the city of Rome itself. The Christian church spreads despite the persecution of the Roman Empire, and then ultimately paradoxically becomes the religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century from the time of the emperor Constantine onward. So these histories are profoundly intertwined. And I think it's an essential part of all of our history for people of faith and people not of faith and everywhere in between. I think we should all wanna know the answer to the question that one of the great Roman historians named Ramsey MacMullen put it, what difference did Christianity make? The title of one of his articles. And his answer, you can read it, but I'll summarize it for you, not much. It's a question that I still think is worth asking. And as we go back to the 250s, to that moment of social crisis, economic crisis, political, environmental, medical crisis, we're going back to a very different world, a world that we almost can't imagine. It's a world of poverty and a world of early death. In pre-industrial times, most people live close to the land in lives of constant labor and uncertain outcome. Science is rudimentary at best. Technology is extremely limited. Travel and communication are slow. Productivity is meager. The problem is too few calories, not too many. When someone prays, give us this day our daily bread, it's a literal request to God. Grain cereals dominate the, the diet supplemented by a little bit of wine and olive oil, maybe some fish. Meat was extremely rare and precious. For most people in the world of the Bible, meat is something extremely rare. Even for middle classes in the Roman world, 
meat isn't an article of daily consumption. It's the kind of thing, if your son has been lost and you see him coming home again, you say, let's kill the fatted calf. We're actually going to eat the cow we have tonight. So it's a very different world. Life expectancy at birth is in the low to mid-20s, skewed a little bit by infant mortality that's unbelievably high. It's a world where deceased infants are cast out and usually not even buried. It's a world where many infants are callously exposed while still alive, condemned to die unmourned. Most people are completely helpless in the face of sickness and disease. Professional doctors did more harm than good. They liked bloodletting. They had all sorts of herbal remedies. People were sick. People died young. They were frail and short. The Romans were on average about three inches shorter than we are today. They lived in a world of constant grinding labor, poverty, nutrition, poor nutrition, infection, and pervasive stress. They live in a world where the climate isn't reliable. Sometimes there's too much rain. Sometimes there's too little. They live in a, an unforgiving and rigid social order that's extremely hierarchical, where all the rules of life are grounded in who has power and status. This is not a world where all men are created equal. There's no human rights, no concept of universal dignity. The legal system protects power and privilege and property. The very first principle of Roman law is that there are two kinds of people, free people and slaves, and everything else flows from which one of those two you are. People who found themselves enslaved in the Roman world were denied legal personhood. They were subject to stigma, violence, abuse. Crucifixion is a form of capital punishment that's usually reserved for slaves and enemies of the state. And its very purpose is to maximize suffering in the most visible, humiliating way. Enslaved people have no control over their bodies. What we think of as coercion, exploitation, even rape of the most degrading kind weren't just tolerated, but were encouraged in Roman society. Now, in all of these ways, the Roman world is really just a variation on the universal themes of all pre-modern societies. The Roman Empire is big. It's bigger than most ancient empires. It's enduring. It's certainly more enduring than most pre-modern states. It had a relatively high degree of urbanization. The Roman Empire fosters city life. The city of Rome itself reaches a population of a million. It's probably the first human city ever to have a million people, supported by its amazing infrastructure of roads, food shipments, aqueducts, and so on. The Roman Empire fosters an amazing degree of trade and exchange. Its financial system is extremely advanced by ancient standards. But it also means that the hierarchies of wealth and inequality in the Roman world are exceptionally steep. The top 1% lived amazing styles of astonishing luxury. Their villas, their palaces that we can still see remind us of the really violent inequality of this world. Most people lived lives of almost unimaginable poverty. Paradoxically, the urbanization and trade of the Roman world actually made their health environment particularly dangerous. Nobody favors human density and connectivity more than the microbes that take advantage of us, the viruses, bacteria, protozoa, whose hardest problem is how to get from one human to another, loved the way the Romans lived in big cities, close to one another, interconnected, and they especially loved the Roman baths. A bunch of people getting in a dirty sauna together and never changing the water was a germ's dream. So the Roman world was brutal. We live across a great chasm. We live in an almost unimaginably different world, a world of affluence and abundance, a world of too many 
calories rather than too few, a world of vaccines, antibiotics, clean water that has pushed back infectious diseases to the margins as a cause of mortality. We live in liberal societies where all people are constitutionally free and equal. We live in a world by, driven by unimaginable advances in science and technology. And most of the differences between our world and the Romans are ultimately technological that have created abundance that would have been unimaginable in the world of Jesus. And as a consequence, most of the challenges that we face, the challenges like climate change and plagues, are byproducts of human success. That is, they originate, in a sense, from within human societies. We have to strive to live in a world where our species has weapons that are capable of ending the existence of humanity. We have to live in a world where the, the byproducts of our energy consumption are changing the climate. We have to live in a world where our expansion often comes at the exp ex expense of other species. We have to learn to survive in a world that has to endure our growth and success. Now, as a historian, I really became deeply interested in questions of climate change and infectious disease, and uh, particularly by what we're learning about the history of climate change and infectious disease, partly because of the need to understand the pressing challenges of climate change in our own day. We're learning about the, the past climate and the way the Earth system has worked, and it's really providing amazing new insights into the, the world of ancient societies and the challenges that they faced uh, when confronted with natural climate variability. And the same is true of infectious disease. Because of largely advances in genetics and the ability to sequence DNA of both living as well as dead uh, microbial pathogens, we're learning an enormous amount about the history of health, pestilence, plague, and disease. I wrote a book about the role of climate change and disease in the Roman Empire. I got so interested in it that I predicted we were gonna have a, a plague and started writing a book about uh, the history of plagues. When uh, a plague happened, I needed it to wait about two more years. Uh, would have been good for book sales, but, uh, but it worked on its own time frame. The ancient societies like the Romans lived in a world that was fragile and where the crises engendered by natural change, whether volcanic eruptions that caused cooling, that caused the harvest to fail, or whether the emergence of new infectious diseases that ripped through their world in ways they couldn't understood. They were vulnerable to these disruptions. We live in a very different world where the challenges of climate change and the challenges of pandemics lie in many ways from within the, the advance of human society itself. And the great historical sociologist Robert Bella uh, asked in one of the lectures that he gave towards the end of his life, a question that I think is very profound. He said, are the ethical traditions developed over the centuries in the great religions and civilizations capable of meeting the ethical challenges of our rapidly escalating cultural condition? In other words, is there enough in the ethical resources of ancient religions like Christianity to help us confront the global challenges that we face? I think it's a big question. It's a question for philosophers and theologians. All I can do as a historian is to try and take us back and help us understand more deeply what those moral resources meant in the world where Christianity took shape. And it was a world of environmental challenge on a global scale. The rise of Christianity is, I believe, as a Roman historian, one of the most utterly improbable events. If you could go back into the time when Pontius Pilate was the governor of 
Roman Judea and predict that the person hanging on the cross would become the, the leader of the most important world religion, uh, people would have said, you're crazy. There's a reason why Paul says that the cross is a stumbling block. It's crazy. Christians worship someone who was publicly executed by the government, uh, carried out the, the most gruesome form of the death penalty. When Paul says that that's a stumbling block, that's what he means. The religion spread slowly. It was born amongst a mostly illiterate peasantry in uh, Judea, and it spread out of the heartland of ancient Israel, across the Eastern Mediterranean to Rome itself. But it's hard to emphasize how tiny the Christian church was in its first generations. Even at the end of the first century, around 100 AD, there can't, been, can't have been many more than a few thousand Christians in a Roman empire of some 70 million people. A century later in the year 200, we still think that there were less than a percent, maybe about a half of a percent of the population of the Mediterranean world would have been recognized as Christians. So it's a tiny religion at the beginning of the third century. And yet somehow, a century later, around 300, things looked very different. There were visible Christian communities all over the Mediterranean. There were, for the first time, purpose-built churches, structures where the Christians gathered to worship. There were millions of people who were adherents to the Christian faith. And this, despite the intensification of persecution, that is, despite the increase in the efforts of the Roman government to use violence to suppress the spread of Christianity. So what was it that caused the Christian church to spread in this Roman world, this brutally poor and fragile world in this time of crisis? Well, I think we can look at what happens in the 250s for some understanding. The 250s not only saw this combined economic, military, cultural crisis, it also saw the arrival of a terrifying new disease. Historians call this a little bit unfairly the plague of Cyprian. The name Cyprian is the name of a Christian bishop, the Bishop of Carthage in North Africa. He's one of the most important figures of the third century. And the plague is known partly from his writings. And so the poor guy did nothing to cause this plague, but it's called the plague uh, of Cyprian because we know the most about it from his texts. And he describes for us what this disease was like. He even describes the terrifying symptoms. He says that the strength of the body is dissolved. The bowels disintegrate in a flow. A fire begins in the inmost depths and burns like wounds in the throat. The intestines are shaken with continuous vomiting. The eyes are set on fire with the force of the blood that comes out of them. The infection of deadly putrefaction cuts off the feet and the extremities of patients. And weakness prevails through the failures and losses of the body. People become unable to walk. Their hearing is lost or their vision is blinded. We have unfortunately very little idea what caused this plague. People have speculated it could have been hemorrhagic fever because he describes so many symptoms that involve hemorrhaging. It could have been plague, smallpox, measles, almost any influenza uh, of the worst infectious diseases of human history. Maybe someday we will know what caused it. But what we do know is already enough. It was absolutely terrifying. In a society that had no modern biomedicine, no understanding of infectious disease, a new disease shows up and starts killing people by the millions. 
But for Cyprian and other Christians of the time, it was considered a test. He wrote, beloved brethren, what is it? What a great thing it is. How pertinent, how necessary that pestilence and plague, which seem horrible and deadly, really searches out the righteousness of each of us. It examines our minds. It sees if we're willing to tend to those who are sick, whether we love our fellow kind, whether masters pity their servants, whether physicians still help their patients, whether the violent suppress their wickedness, whether the rapacious quench their ardor of avarice. It teaches us whether the proud will be humble, whether the wicked will soften their wickedness. It tells us when our dear ones perish, whether the rich will bestow their wealth on those who are dying and in need. And if this plague has taught us nothing else, it has done this benefit to Christians and to God's servants that we begin gladly to desire martyrdom as we learn not to fear death. He means that it strengthens us in the persecution to realize that we're going to die anyway. He said, these are like trainings for us, not death. They give the mind the glory of courage. By contempt of death, they prepare us for the crown. So he says, this plague is a test. It's a test for all of us who are living through it. It was a test for the Roman empire, a military economic test. It was a test for this society. And many of our contemporary sources who lived through this tell us that, in fact, the greatest test of all was the problem of people who were sick and who were dying. Serving the sick and disposing of the corpses became an immediate and overwhelming crisis. One of the deacons from the church in Carthage wrote that there broke out a deadly plague as the destruction of this hateful disease invaded every house in turn among the trembling population. Every day, countless people were attacked and died in their homes. Everyone was quaking with fear, running away, trying to avoid the contagion, even wickedly turning their backs on their own families, as if by pushing out the person who was dying of plague, they could keep death out of their house. No one thought of anything but themselves. No one helped anyone the way they would have wanted to be helped. And over the whole city lay not just the bodies of the dead, but the rotting carcasses no one had the courage to take away. But we also know from Christian sources in this period that their leaders taught them to do something different. In Alexandria, the bishop's name was Dionysius, and we have his letters written at this time, preserved in the church history of Eusebius, our most important church historian. And here's what Dionysius says in Alexandria. The plague affected both the Christians and the pagans alike. To the pagans, it was more dreadful than any dread, more intolerable than any disaster. But to us, it wasn't so. It was simply an exercise and a trial. The plague didn't spare us, but it affected the heathen just as much. Most of our brothers were unsparing in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness. They held fast to each other and visited the sick fearlessly, ministered to them continually, serving them in Christ. And they died with them most joyfully, taking the afflictions of others and drawing the sickness from their neighbors to themselves and receiving their pains. Many who cared for the sick and gave strength to others died themselves, having transferred the sickness to themselves. Many of the best of our brothers died in this manner, 
elders and deacons and people who were held in the highest esteem. So that this form of death and the piety and faith that it exhibited seemed like a kind of martyrdom. But for the pagans, it was otherwise. They deserted those who were sick. They fled from their friends. They cast them into the streets when they were half dead and left the dead bodies like trash, unburied. They shunned any participation or fellowship with death. And yet with all their precautions, it wasn't easy for them to escape. This is a turning point in the history of the Roman Empire and in the Christian church. And I think it's one episode that tells us what it was that allowed the Christian church to spread in the third century. We as historians, I think, have come to appreciate that the Christian church spreads in a world that is still full of a very vibrant paganism. In other words, the belief in the old gods wasn't dead. Christianity didn't fill a vacuum that was empty. The worship of the old city gods that was deeply tied to patriotism, to civic life, was energetic in the Roman world. It was a world of religious diversity, of religious change, adaptation, new gods and cults that spread. It was a world of a very philosophical paganism. So when the Christian church spreads, it's confronting a strong political, religious, intellectual synthesis. And as it does so, it does so in a way that I think is very radically distinct. This is something that historians have debated for generations. Is Christian morality in essence, like Greco-Roman morality in the world that it spreads. And some very, I think, important and respectable people say, yes, it is. And if you look at the Christian scriptures, there are places where the Apostle Paul sounds like a Stoic. There are places where the Apostle Paul sounds like a Platonist philosopher. In Acts 17, when he goes to Athens, he goes to the hill of Mars and speaks to the pagan philosophers. And he does so in a way that would have absolutely made sense to a Platonist in Athens. So he could speak their language and he did speak their language, but he used it to say something very different. And one thing that strikes me as a Roman historian who works on early Christianity is simply how often the Christians have to invent words to try and say what they're saying. I've worked a lot on the word that the Christian church uses for fornication. It's a very strange word. Fornication is not a real word in English. It's not a word people actually use. It's not a real word in Latin. It's made up in Latin because they can't say what they need to say otherwise. Pornea is essentially made up by Jews and Christians in this world to try and talk about a new way of thinking about sex and marriage because it's so radically different from the world around them. But there's one word that I think is really at the center of the Christian New Testament. And that is again, so different that you almost can't find this word in the pre-Christian tradition. It's the word agape. It's the word for, for love in the Christian New Testament. There are not half a dozen examples of this word in classical literature before Christianity. And then in the New Testament, as a noun or a verb, it's used over 200 times. If you're attuned, if your ears attuned to the classical philosophical texts, you never see this coming. You have no idea that all of a sudden there'll be an ethical system that teaches something that it calls agape. We translate it as love, but it's a word that's hard to translate. It's a word that means love in the sense of mercy. That is, it's a kind of love that transcends justice. It's not a right or wrong. It's not a, an eye for an eye. It's a, it's a kind of love that completely breaks down any sense uh, of justice. It's sometimes translated charity, and that does a good job of capturing the sacrificial nature 
the kind of love that would cause you to give of your own to someone you may not even know. It's a love of grace. That's a good translation. It's unconditional and limitless kind of love. But love is not a bad word either with its kind of fire and unpredictability. Christians in the New Testament talk about this kind of love. When they say love your neighbor, it's have agape for your neighbor. When Luke presents the parable of the prodigal son, a father sees his son that's been lost and wandered and strayed and sees him coming back. That's the kind of love that Christians mean by agape. When Christ talks about the good Samaritan, that is neighbor love that would cause you to sacrifice even for someone you'd never met. It's the love that Christ shows on the cross. And it's the love in John 3.16 that God shows for his creation. It comes out of absolutely nowhere, but it changes everything. It leads Christians to act differently in the world, to act differently towards the sick. And when Dionysius of Alexandria says that Christians showed each other extreme love, the word is agape. It's the kind of love that would lead them to care for the sick, to bury the dead, even at great sacrifice to themselves. It gave early Christianity a kind of radicalism that caused it to look differently at every social institution. It's the Christian fathers of the fourth century who were the first ancient thinkers to condemn slavery completely. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the great Greek patristic writers in the fourth century, is the first person to say that fundamentally, the universally accepted institution of slavery is unjust because it violates the dignity of the creation because every individual is created in the image of God and slavery is a betrayal of that. We have an obligation to love all human beings and slavery is fundamentally a violation of that. No one before had ever spoken like that. So I think what difference did Christianity make? It made a big difference. It led them to look differently at poverty in a brutally unequal world where status was everything and where to be poor was a shame. The Christians look at the problem of poverty the way that it's never been looked before. They look at it through the idea of the image of God. And again, people like Gregory of Nyssa say, don't walk by a poor person. That person has the personhood of God. They have the personhood of Christ himself. Whoever loves the poor loves Christ, love. It's an amazingly different language that had no precedent, that comes from nowhere within Greco-Roman culture. And it's what causes Christianity to spread. I think in the third century, we've now increasingly realized that Christianity spreads rapidly. It spreads from the bottom up. So in other words, when Constantine converts to Christianity in the fourth century and a Roman emperor for the first time endorses Christianity as the state religion, it no doubt accelerates the spread of Christianity. But what's remarkable is how much momentum it already had because of people who had formed communities and preached the gospel and lived out acts of love in a difficult world of crisis. The early Christians who lived out this new ethic were both part of the world and apart from it. They were always engaged in the world. They were the ones caring for the sick, burying the dead, helping the poor, and people noticed. There was nothing like this in the ancient city, in the structures of an ancient society or a Greco-Roman city. There was no one who cared for the poor or the sick in the way that these Christian communities did. This time of crisis was also a time of change. It was a crucible. It was a test. It was a test 
for the Roman world, and it was a test for the Christian church. The Christian church passed that test, and I think that the simple answer is that one word answer. It was because of agape, because they lived out that value that was central to their way of living in the world. If you could go back to 248, when the Romans celebrated the thousandth year birthday of their city, they would have had no idea what lay just ahead. Neither do we. We don't know what the future will bring. We live in a time when war threatens, when climate crisis threatens, when pandemic disease threatens us. We don't know if this political empire that we live in, this state, will endure for another decade or another millennium. No one here can know that. The Romans didn't know it, and the Christians didn't know it. They knew simply that they had a commitment to the values of agape. They knew that they had a commitment to love. Let me close with uh, some words from C.S. Lewis, whose book on the four loves is an amazing meditation on these ideas. He writes about love. There is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But Christ did not teach and suffer that we might become, even in the natural loves, more careful of our own happiness. If a man is not uncalculating towards the earthly beloveds whom he has seen, he is none the more likely to be so towards God whom he has not. We shall draw nearer to God, not by trying to avoid the sufferings inherent in all loves, but by accepting them and offering them to him, throwing away all defensive armor. If our hearts need to be broken, if he chooses this as the way in which they should break, so be it. I think that those are words that the Christians in 250 would have understood and recognized. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate your attention and I'm happy to field questions. Are we doing questions? Okay. Uh, yes, we'll be doing questions. Thanks. Let's give uh, Kyle a hand. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.